So as I mentioned earlier, we'll start a new series for Christmas, and we'll bring to conclusion this morning in Romans 11, verses 25 through 36, we'll bring to conclusion the capstone and summary of God's redemptive plan for Jews and Gentiles, and we'll do this recalling how Romans began, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now that argument, that summary is brought to a capstone and a conclusion here, and I'll read beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, stir up within us a passion and an awe for what you are doing, for who you are, for the wonder of your righteousness, for the glory of your redemptive plan, we pray. Do that, and we will give you the thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a study last year, and this study appeared in uh, the peer-reviewed journal Emotion, and it's called Big Smile, Small Self, All Walks Promote Pro-Social Positive Emotions in Older Adults. And they measured the smile intensity. I don't know how you do this, but they measured the smile intensity of Older adults, so they were over 50. That's sort of a 49-year-old joke uh, for you. But they measured the smile intensity of people and their emotional state after they encouraged them to go on a 15-minute walk, and they were encouraged to refrain from using their phones during the walks except to take photographs. And they were given this instruction— with the right outlook, awe, A-W-E, if I'm going Texan on you, awe, 
can be found almost anywhere, but it is most likely to occur in places that involve two key features, physical vastness and novelty. So they were given that instruction, and they would go out on this walk. And, and what they noticed was their conclusion, reading from the abstract here, is that even though aging into later life is often accompanied by social disconnection, anxiety, and sadness, they found that this positive emotion of awe, which they define, they define it this way, uh, they say, a positive emotion elicited when in the presence of vast things not immediately understood. I'm going to read that to you again. What is awe? It's a positive emotion elicited when in the presence of vast things not immediately understood. When they came into contact with this vast situation, what they found, it reduces self-focus, promotes social connection, and fosters pro-social activities by encouraging a, quote, small self. And what are, they, what are they getting at here? Well, I want to offer you this, that secular psychology has bumped up into, sort of discovered what Christians knew all along, that when we come into contact with the transcendent, namely Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it pushes the focus off of ourselves, and we get some of that fostering of pro-social actions. I don't know what those are, but they sound good, and we probably need some of them. When a Christian comes into contact with the transcendent Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He who is so vast and in many ways knowable yet unknowable, immutable, unchangeable, the vastness of his redemptive plan elicits awe in us and it increases our joy in the wonder of who God is. And you know, that's what this passage is really about. It's about the awe that the Apostle Paul has as he considers and contemplates the wonder of God's salvific plan for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And he writes in this passage, look with me at verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. You know, what happens to us is we get self-focused and we don't come into contact with the vastness of who God is. And so our focus tends to stay on us. We're like an emotional black hole, sucking everything in, seeing everything from our perspective. But coming into contact with the vast redemptive plan of God pushes that focus off of ourselves. And we are not wise in our own sight, thinking only of ourselves. And so... That's what this passage is about, how we recapture the awe, how we grow in our sense of awe with regard to God, with regard to how awesome salvation is and being a Christian. How do we encourage and develop the small self, the humility, where the focus isn't on ourselves, where we don't always think? about ourselves? How do we as Christians get back or discover? 
how we can live a fulfilling and contented life in the midst of a society that's gone off the rails? How do we recover our sense of awe and then have the joy and the gratitude and the thanksgiving that is so much a part of our worship in Christian life? If you're in awe of God, if you are in awe of the wonder of His plan, it starts there. It starts there. When we are in awe of what He has done for us in Christ, that drives our worship, it drives our service, it drives our obedience, and it motivates us because we aren't focused on ourselves anymore. So how do we do it? I've got a better solution for you than an awe walk. You don't need to walk anywhere. I've got a better solution for you. It begins with an awareness of the mystery. And you see this in verses 25 through 27. So the Apostle Paul gives the purpose for which he's writing this section. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Well, how do we get wise in our own sight? Thinking and just focusing on ourselves. Part of how that happens, that condition, is that We are unaware of this mystery. Look at verse 25, unaware of this mystery. So what is the mystery? Pauline usage of the word mystery is different than what we think of as mystery. When we think of a mystery, we think, who done it? And we want to get to the solution. And we want to puzzle things out and solve the mystery. But biblically, the word mystery is used here as something so great, so vast, so awesome that you can't figure it out, that you can't solve it. A mystery in a biblical sense is not something to be solved. It is something to wonder at and to be in awe of. And so what is the mystery? It's right here for us in verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's what the mystery is. And the mystery is the complexity and the providence of God working out His plan of salvation. How does He work this plan? Well, He begins at the beginning. He begins with the Jews. He begins with Abraham. He begins with Adam and Eve. And he works his plan of salvation. And we're told here in this verse, verse 25 of Romans 11, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. They have partially rejected the message of salvation and the Messiah. And we're told the duration of this partial hardening. Partial hardening because not everyone is hardened. Not everyone rejects the Messiah who is Jewish. This will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the exact number that God has decreed of the Gentiles to be saved. That's how long the hardening will last. Now, the hardening is something that we should be familiar with because what's that famous account? where God hardens someone's heart. Pharaoh, back in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, he intentionally affected Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh would reject 
God, therefore God could all the more display his greatness and his power to Pharaoh. We wouldn't have ten plagues if Pharaoh's heart wasn't hardened. Maybe we'd only get to two or three. But God intentionally went all the way to ten in order to display his greatness. Now, we don't have to go all the way back to Exodus for that. Flip the page in your Bible or scroll down to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to refer a couple times to Romans 9 here because Romans 9 through 11 is the complete summary and argument. And we're at the conclusion here. So there's some points made in Romans 9 we need to remind ourselves of because that was some weeks ago. But Romans 9, 17, look with me there. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Why would God allow Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh did? For this very purpose I have raised you up, Romans 9, 17, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is part of the mystery. Now back to Romans 11, 20, <clears throat> 25. This is part of the mystery of God's working. We don't understand or know. We can't figure it all out, but it is a display of the greatness of God. In verse 26 and 27, we see a quotation from Isaiah 59, 20 through 21. And this quotation reminds us of God's sovereignty because it was his intention all along, his plan all along to have this partial hardening of Israel that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. This was his plan all along. And the fulfillment of that, written for us here, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so the Apostle Paul is saying this now, this passage, this prophetic passage back in Isaiah 700 BC is fulfilled now. We've skipped a major and important question. Look at verse 26. In this way, what? All Israel will be saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have to look. That all depends on how you define Israel. Remember back to the early parts of Romans chapter 9, uh, when I preached that sermon on the opening verses, I said Israel biblically cannot mean a political entity in the Middle East, a political state. That isn't the proper biblical definition of who Israel is. What's the proof of that? Look at Romans chapter 9. So what we're going to do is we're going to use a biblical definition of Israel. What does Paul mean by Israel? Look in Romans 9, 6 through 8. This is what many well-meaning evangelical Christians miss. They don't use biblical definitions for the terms that they, they're using. Look at Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Why would that be the case? Look at verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Verse 8. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It is a spiritual relationship to God that makes you part of Israel. It is not whether or not you are related ethnically or whether you live in a political state in the Middle East. Israel is defined here spiritually, spiritually. So when we go back, when we take that understanding, a biblical understanding that is within the larger context of what Paul writes in Romans 11, and we read, all Israel will be saved, we now know that all Israel is those who have come to God like Abraham did. And how did Abraham come to God? Romans 4.3. Do you see how it's all pulling together? Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. By faith, someone becomes part of Israel. And do you see the mystery is how God is working together to formulate and bring both Jews and Gentiles into one people of God. One people of God. Israel that believes the promises like Abraham did in Romans 4.3. So when I explain this to you, I hope, and it is complex, is it not? It's a complex argument the Apostle Paul is making here. When I explain that to you, it is meant to elicit awe in you that you and I would understand that God has no plan B. There's only plan A. And God, through his sovereign power and providence, works all things in order to complete his plan. And by doing so, it makes us in awe of who God is. We're not meant to solve the mystery or answer all the questions. We're meant to stand back and say, wow. Our God is awesome. We need to engender that kind of awe in our life. And sometimes, you know, life doesn't have a lot of awe. Life has a lot of explanations that explain away the awe. Let me give you an example for you parents or grandparents. Your grandchild or children, they may ask you the question, Mommy, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa, why is the sky blue? Have you been asked that question? Why is the sky blue? And let me explain to you how we explain away the awe when we answer, well, light is not actually a ray. It behaves more like a collection of particles called photons. And when these particles hit the atmosphere, they diffuse. And your eye, in your ocular, you have an ocular nerve, and in your eye, you perceive this light as blue because it's a lengthened wavelength. And blue is on the longer end of the wavelength of light. And that is why the sky is blue. Oh, excuse me. <gasps> That's a true answer, isn't it? Yes. But it is not one that elicits or engenders or supports or develops awe. 
How might you answer that question differently? Maybe you're asked that same question, why is the sky blue? And you look, and you observe the sky, and you pause, and you say, isn't it beautiful? Isn't the sky beautiful? Isn't that color blue beautiful? God made it that way. It brings him delight to see that color blue. And he made it that way so that you would enjoy it. And by the way, there's light behaves more like a collection of particles, not, wave, not rays, and these are called photons, and they diffuse when they hit the atmosphere. You, you can add that on, you see? Kind of ruins it, doesn't it? But you can add it on if you're raising an engineer or a scientist. They'll be interested in that part. But you see how you can answer that differently and elicit awe. We need more of that in our society where we wonder and we question and we don't run to the computer to get the answer. But we marvel at this created order and universe that God has made and it elicits awe in us. And so that's just a quick example of how we can elicit awe to recapture that awe in the sense that we don't need to always answer what the mystery is. We can just stand in awe of it and appreciate it as we see God working to redeem people. So we're talking about recapturing the awe, recapturing the awe, the wonder at all that God has done. Part of how we do that is we see the magnificence of His plan, and we are aware of this mystery, but as well, we need to wonder at His mystery, wonder, wonder at His mercy, excuse me. We wonder at, his, at the wonderful mercy of God, and you see that in the next few verses, verses 28 through 32, to, to marvel, really, to wonder at the great mercy God has had. Look at verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, who's he talking about here? He's talking about the Jews versus the Gentiles he is writing to. So, they, the Jews, are enemies for Gentiles for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, that is a communication of their forefathers. Who would that be? Abraham. We've talked about him. Read Romans 4. For the sake of their forefathers, they're still loved. Election is that wonderful truth that God knows who will respond to him. And he has selected those. He has selected those, and this is what it takes to accomplish our salvation. Without election, we would not pick God left to our own devices. Election is, of course, a biblical term. It's right here in the Bible, and so we don't want to explain that away or leave that out as part of our theology. We want to have a biblical theology. And what we learn here is that God is still at work. He's still at work among those who might be subject to the partial hardening. God is still at work. 
And we read in verse 29, good news, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What are those gifts? They're listed for us. Romans 9, verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That didn't waste it. God is still at work, and we marvel at the wonder of his mercy. And then read this, verses 30 and 31 go together here. For just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy, why? Because of their disobedience, because of the Jews' rejection, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. Verse 31, so they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. Do you see this reversal that's happening? And it is something we just marvel at the mercy of God. He begins with the Jews. They reject him partially. The gospel goes out to the Gentiles. But then what happens? We're told here, the Gentiles partially reject God too. And the Jews get jealous and they come to the faith. And it's all happening there at that church in Rome. Jews, Gentiles coming together. God's plan of salvation working in marvelous, wonderful ways. And his gifts and his call cannot be rejected, cannot be taken back, irrevocable because of his great mercy. We read in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience. And we know something of that if you've read Romans 1, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why? That he might have mercy on all. Mercy on all. Does God actually have mercy on all? What about those people who reject him? Does he have mercy on them? Absolutely. Why? Because they linger. They're here. God doesn't immediately wipe out all those who have rejected him. He allows them to breathe the same air that we're blessed to breathe and to inhabit the same earth that we're blessed to inhabit. They linger by his grace and they tarry in this life. Unbelievers do. As an example of the vast mercy that God has had. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 through 24, show us beautifully this reality. Romans 9, 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, notice this, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why has he done this? Why does God tolerate unbelievers? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Who's the vessels of mercy? The recipients of his mercy. That would be Christians in Christ. That we would know something of his mercy because he tolerates even those who blaspheme against him. That this is 
a communication by unbelievers how merciful God is by their very existence. And it is something that we are in awe of. Every day, we should be astounded that God keeps his promises to us, that his gifts and his calling are irrevocable, and that he tolerates those who reject him. And so, so far, what I've shown you in this passage, we're trying to recover our awe, awareness of the mystery. Remember, we're not going to solve it. We're going to stand back and wonder at the glory of God in his plan of salvation. We're looking at the wonder of his mercy. The wonder of his mercy is how he is having mercy on both Jews and Gentiles and bringing together one family of God. And now I'm going to offer you this. I'll conclude with this. Worship, worship as a better all walk. Remember, we began with that study. If people would go out walk for 15 minutes and notice the vastness of the created order, it would have a pro-social effect on them, whatever that is, and their smile intensity would increase. But let me tell you this. You don't need to go for a walk. It's right here. Worship is something that instills in us this sense of awe. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here. After writing about God's mercy and his plan and seeing this all unfolded on the page before him, what does he do? He worships. Look at verses 33 through 36. Look how verse 33 begins. Oh, that's an expression of awe, isn't it? Oh. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches. The riches are the abundance of God that He is able to draw forth from treasures we know nothing about. The riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God are all extolled here. He's given praise for them. And then look, verse 33, how unsearchable are His judgments. In other words, with our finite mind, we cannot grasp how good His judgments are. And give praise. What I'm doing here, I'm arguing that you would have a biblical theology that isn't limited by your finite mind. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, the inscrutable here meaning unfathomable, that we have no ability to really evaluate. It's impossible to understand it. That doesn't stop us from saying we do understand it, though. And that goes back to, lest you be wise in your own sight, verse 25. And then we get two questions, two how questions. For who has, or excuse me, the two hows are how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And then in verses 34 and 35, we get these two questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. No one can tell God what to do or know the depth of his sovereignty and plan. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We cannot repay him for his, the wonder of his mercy. You can live the most righteous, perfect life. You will not even make a beginning to repaying him. And so what is the conclusion here? 
It's a conclusion of worship and praise. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him. This is God the Father, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul has to stop here writing to praise God and to worship because worship is what leads us into this position of awe before God and wonder before Him. And then the joy and the contentment and everything that flows from that comes from the wonder of who God is. And I want to tell you this, if you want to renew your awe, your awe, the level of your awe, and, and I do believe society sort of presses it down and our culture sort of presses it down and explains it away and the Bible encourages and inspires us to have awe with regards to God. I want to tell you, your awe has a shelf life, about six days. And God created us in part, we're made in His image to worship, to renew that awe and to do it together as a community that as we know the different stories of people who are around us and we're worshiping together, that that awe is reignited in our life and in our hearts. We need to protect that awe. We need to foster and nourish it with our youngest members and young generation that we together would be a people motivated for corporate public worship, the gathering to renew our awe and to come back together and to remember together and collectively as a community how great and how awesome God is. And to leave this place living as a consequence of that awe being renewed. That's what we're called to that we together, because our motivation for worship, our motivation for obedience and serving others and volunteering in the church, it all flows from whether you are in awe of how awesome God is. And what happens next? Well, you see in Romans 12... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, the therefore rests on having a life that is in awe of who God is. The great mercy he has had on us, yes, and the wonder of the mystery of his plan of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you that you indeed have called us to be in awe of how great and how awesome you are. And we are thankful for that, and we pray that you would renew our heart to come into worship and to experience this awe and to renew it. And we pray that by so doing, we would serve you all the more, we would serve you better, we would obey and walk with you better because we are in awe of how awesome you are how vast you are, and by so doing, you would get the focus off of us and onto you where it belongs. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.